Welcome to the Buddhist Ta Berlin podcast. Join us for live recordings from classes, insightful talks, and guided meditations. Thanks very much, Tara Palita. Uh, it's very good to be back in Berlin and to be back uh, speaking in uh, the Buddhistische Tor. I probably said that wrong again. I'll get it right one day. But it's very, very good to be uh, to be back here again and to see this uh, this class flourishing uh, so well. This Saturday morning uh, class. Um, yeah, I've been coming to Berlin for quite a long time now, and um, this 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 business of being the president. I do, I do, I do want to say something about that because it's such a weird word. Um, it's not my preferred, uh, I don't know what you call somebody who we call a president, basically every centre in the Tree Ratna throughout the world has one um, and they tend to be a senior member of the order and the way I see it is that, that I'm just a friend of the centre from outside, I mean that's, that seems to me to be the most important uh, sort of function really, just a friend to the centre, to everybody who comes to the centre in principle. And I came to Berlin originally because of friendship. Arya Bandhu, who's the, ch the chairman at the back there, he lived with me and he, we talked a lot about Germany. He was exploring his roots when he lived us, with us at Babaloka. And he, he said, well, let's go on holiday. And uh, we started in Berlin and then we went to some other places. And I immediately connected with here. And I, I even taught on that uh, occasion. And I felt a very strong uh, had a very strong feeling developed for the city and uh, for this centre, for the activities in this centre, um, coming from a little island uh, in the North Atlantic, um, as we must describe Great Britain now. Um, coming to Berlin, you really do feel like at the centre of Europe. Um, in some ways, you feel like you're at the centre of the world in some ways. Um, such an important city, and it's really good that we have a very flourishing uh, Buddhist centre uh, in this city and uh, the other thing I love about it is the, is the sense of the internationality of, of this centre. I mean in this class I know there are many people from many different countries, different cultural backgrounds. I, I just love that. I just find that so inspirational uh, that the Dharma, that Buddhism uh, is affecting people's lives from you know so many different countries and and that means, of course, people looking at the Dharma from their particular perspective. Um, living in a little island in the North Atlantic, it's very, very important for me to be able to see the world through the eyes of, of, of other people and see how they practice Buddhism, how they practice meditation, how they practice the Dharma. When I encounter that, it gives me a lot of energy, um, a lot of inspiration and energy, um, a lot of stimulation. Um, because, of course, Buddhism, what we call the Dharma, the truth, the teaching, reality, um, you know, had a, it, it, didn't, it, you know, it spread all over Asia, all over Asia. It wasn't just confined to one particular culture. And wherever it went, it always, as not exactly adapted, but translated itself into the context of the culture. Um, even while maintaining and sustaining its own particular 
uh, genius and, and, and vision. And, uh, well, it's happening like that in uh, the, the modern West, in the modern world, because the conditions of, of, of the West are sort of spreading everywhere in some ways, aren't they? You know, if you think of, you know, the, 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 the way technology is uh, developing, the way values are sort of so-called values are transmitting. So it's very, very good to be here, to leave my semi-monastic uh, environment. I haven't been out for a while. Um, so it was uh, very exciting landing in uh, Berlin last night and uh, uh, being met by friends and, um, you know, going and having our curry, vegan curry vorst and chips. Um, you know, so I... Uh, is it curry 36? You know, go and worship the local gods and uh, goddesses. Um, and here I am. And um, yes, I, I kept asking people here what I should talk about. And they always say, well, talk about what you want to talk about. Uh, because I don't, I know some of you in this class, but most of you I don't know. And I know some of you are, are quite new to things. You're quite new to uh, things. Maybe even some of you have come for your first time uh, this morning. So in some ways, I, I, I don't quite know. Uh, who I'm talking to, but the other morning in meditation, I thought, oh, I know, I'll do, I'll do a talk on energy. Energy is always good. Um, a specific teaching on on energy, a traditional Buddhist teaching on energy, um, because it's so important in Buddhist practice, so important in meditation practice. You might be surprised to hear that. Um, you might even be surprised to hear that that the Buddhist life is an active life. We associate Buddhism with the meditating Buddha, quite rightly. Um, but you, you, you could also associate Buddhism with the walking Buddha and the standing Buddha. You do have images in the East of the Buddha standing and walking. Some of them, you know, very strong-looking figures making the gesture of the gift of fearlessness, the gift of courage, uh, because the Buddha spent a lot of his life walking. He expressed his enlightenment, the fullness of his uh, wisdom and compassion through communication, communicating to people, communicating his liberating message to people in all sorts of circumstances and situations. He was a wanderer. You know, he had his patched uh, yellow robes and he walked from place to place begging his food. Uh, and wherever he went, he communicated, he taught. Um, sometimes a great long lecture, sometimes just talking, just uh, sitting down with somebody and uh, engaging with them, engaging with their concerns and sort of introducing them to a, a way of practicing, a way of living their life that would lead in the direction of enlightenment according to their circumstances. Uh, and always giving a message of transformation. You know, the Buddhist life, the meditative life in Buddhism is a life of transformation. I think it's important to understand that because, you know, there's a lot of teachings on meditation, and there's so many, aren't there? Um, and maybe that's a good thing. But sometimes you can get the sense that, that meditation is sort of about just simply accepting yourself. I mean, a lot of the sort of buzzwords these days of, is sort of, well, accept yourself as you are. You are good enough as you are. Seems people have a lot of problems with, with just uh, 
uh, with themselves. So I suppose that's why that language is so attractive. That's not actually the way the Buddha ever taught. Uh, Buddhist meditation practice is a turning towards virtue, a turning towards virtuous states of mind, skillful states of mind, skillful in the sense that they are to do with training in how to transform yourself in the direction of the Buddha's attainment. So it's a growth in awareness. It's a growth in mindfulness. It's a growth in wise attention. It's a growth in friendliness and loving kindness. It's a growth in compassion. It's a growth in understanding. It's noticing, you know, when you meditate, well, these things that I'm entertaining will actually not help me. And these other things will help me in this, in this movement. And the, word, the key word is skillful. It's not good or bad or good and evil. That's, that's not the language. The language is more like you're a craftsperson. You know, you're a, you're a, you're, you have a craft. Your mind is your craft. Your life is your craft. You're, not, you're like the skilled carpenter or... The Buddha says the skilled irrigator channeling uh, the waters or the skilled uh, chariot driver, you know, to use an image that would have been around in his day, the skilled potter. But your medium is you. Your medium is you. Your medium also eventually will be other people, will be the world, but it begins with you. It begins with us. It begins with our mind. And whether you've been here for a while or it's your first time of practicing here, that's what you've encountered. You've encountered you, you've encountered your mind, and you've started to shape it. You've started to work with it. You've started to move it in a particular direction. And, you know, you might, might have noticed that that's not always easy. Um, sometimes you may have sort of taken off. Maybe sometimes on your first time you have a an experience of beginner's mind where suddenly, wow, you know, this is, this is it. You know, you're, you're off into expansive modes of consciousness that you hadn't sort of dreamed of. That can happen in, in meditation. But it might be, and it very often is, oh, crikey, this thing called me, uh, this mind is very, very slippery. It's very, very elusive. I mean, the Buddha said this in a famous discourse, how slippery the mind is, how frivolous it is. It alights on whatever it pleases. Um, and it's so hard to tame, so hard to train, so hard to work with. And yet work with it, we must, because it's only the trained mind that brings happiness. It's, it's the mind itself that leads to um, a liberated life or an imprisoned life, a creative life, or a repetitive life. So this is not easy because it requires tremendous honesty, uh, self-honesty, tremendous truthfulness, and dedication, and commitment. And yes, energy. Energy, surprisingly. Not, not a harsh, not a sort of really willed energy in the, in the sort of negative sense, but a... Um, an energy that, well, it should begin with a very natural responsiveness. So I'm going to give you a, a traditional teaching on what are called the five 
viryas or the five energies. Um, perhaps I should just define my terms a little bit. Um, the word virya, I'm translating it as energy, but you need to add a little bit more. It's energy in pursuit of the good, in the sense of the skillful. Uh, you know, we can be addicted to energy, can't we? We love energy. I love energy. Um, and it's, I was talking to somebody earlier who was saying uh, they, they were feeling that they just didn't have any energy. And uh, I was recovering from a cold the other week, and I felt so fatigued. And it's ghastly. There seems to be a lot of that around at the moment, where you, you're trying to put your foot on the gas, and, and nothing's happening. You know, there's something wrong with the accelerator, or there's just, there's just nothing in the, in the gas tank. You know, there's, there's nothing there. And, you know, for a sort of reasonably high-energy person like myself, that is a little bit troubling. Fortunately, I recovered. Maybe it was the prospect of coming to Berlin. But... Um, um, it, 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 you can, even if you don't have that kind of energy, you can still have this energy in pursuit of the good or the skillful. So it, it's not just any energy. It's the energy that's dedicated to a life of developing virtue, to use that word, to moving in the direction of the Buddha's enlightenment, to develop these skillful, positive, creative uh, qualities, the energy dedicated to transformation. Um, its opposite, of course, is laziness. It's very interesting, the discussion of laziness in Buddhist tradition. Uh, one teacher says there's such a thing as, as gross laziness. What's gross laziness? It's being addicted to such things as making money and subduing your enemies. In other words, business and politics. A lot of energy in that, but it's completely lazy, according to this tradition, because it's not energy which is really pursuing a meaningful life. So don't get the idea that energy is sort of running around headless, uh, doing, you know, just for its own sake, or even running around doing good. You can get that, can't you? You can get people who are very, very energetic, sorting people out, apparently, getting very anxious, very uptight, being a complete pain uh, to everybody else because they're always telling you what to do and what not to do. That's not what we're talking about. In talking about virya, we're talking about an energy which is dedicated to life's meaning. And life's meaning in Buddhist tradition is moving in the direction of the Buddha's enlightenment. So the first uh, virya, and it's hard to translate the Sanskrit terms, uh, it's usually translated as, as the virya that's ever ready, uh, or the energy that's ever ready. It's roused up energy. It's something aroused uh, in you. You've sort of stirred up uh, your energy, if you like, your, your inspiration. Um, this is really, really important, that, that all the energies come out of a state of inspiration. Uh, even a state of aspiration. And there's all sorts of ways in which this is discussed. But one of the ways it's discussed is that you realise uh, that, that the, your human life is very, very precious. I mean, a lot of people don't have energy or they don't have the energy I'm talking about because they can feel rather helpless or hopeless, even a bit depressed. Um, you know, people can be very sensitive, they look at the world... 
they look at the state of the world, they look at their life, and they can just feel so dismayed, dismayed, and sort of disillusioned, and even sort of hopeless and helpless. You know, what's the point? Even feel sort of bad about feeling that. But Buddhist tradition says, look, all right, you know, the world can be very problematic, but the thing is, you have this incredible thing called a precious human life form. This is so, so important. Uh, we've already got what we need. Um, people can give human beings, human beings can give human beings a hard time in this day and age, but Buddhist tradition says no. A human life form is, is indeed a very privileged life form, not in the sense of having power over other forms of life. It's because you have a very special kind of consciousness which you need to value. Human beings have this reflexive consciousness, this self-consciousness in the best sense. We're not just trapped in sense experience. If we're trapped in sense experience, we're just going to react to stimuli, you know, and we'll, we'll fight or we'll fly or whatever it might be. But we can reflect on our experience. We can reflect on, actually, this sort of behaviour is conducive to development, this sort of behaviour isn't. We can even reflect on the effect we have on other people. This is really important as human beings. It's, it's the basics for Buddhist ethical practice. We have the possibility of reflecting on the impact we have on other people. You know, are we having a positive, beneficial impact on people? Or are we having a negative, destructive impact on people? We can see that. We can reflect on that. We can even sort of have a sense that we could become more than we are. This is why we have the Buddha image. The Buddha image is to remind us that we have the potentiality, because of the special kind of consciousness that we have, if we use it, to actually move and change our life and take it in a radically different direction. So this is very, very precious. I mean, not only do we have this, we actually live in a world of comparative freedoms. You know, we have the freedom to come to the centre this morning and meditate. We have the leisure, actually, to do that. I know, I'm sure, many of you are very busy in your lives, but, you know, there are some parts of the world where people have to work and work and work, where it's unending toil. We actually have the freedom and the leisure to come to this place, to meditate together, to enjoy one another's company, to give all our attention to doing what we need to develop on the path. So we, we need to rouse up our energy through reflecting on what we have, reflecting on the potentiality that we have, that, that we can really do something, that we don't actually have to feel uh, depressed about life. Um, one of the things we also need for this, I think, is, is good friends, uh, what we call spiritual friends, Kalyana Mitras. It's so, so good to meet people who've, who've dedicated their lives to this life and who can put us in touch with that. I and mean, this is what you find with the Buddha time and time again. He'd meet somebody, they'd be really down about life, really disillusioned with themselves, uh, feeling that they were wasting their lives, um, you know, that, 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 that they really weren't doing anything. And there'd be this encouragement, 
just a few words and, of course, the example of somebody who'd lived uh, that life. And that would rouse them, that would stir them up, that would make them want to enter into this life. So, first of all, we need to rouse our energies up. You know, if you're struggling in meditation or in Buddhist practice, look for your sources of inspiration. Why did you start this life? What were you searching for when you came along here? What are you looking for? If you're not sure what your life is for, ask yourself, what am I really looking for? You know, where can I get the energy to go on this uh, quest? And really look at uh, yourself, look at your, you know, what am I really trying to do uh, with myself? And don't lose heart, I'll come to that uh, in a minute. It's so important to rouse up uh, your energy. But that's not enough. Um, I could sit here waffling on for ages about how wonderful we are as human beings and, you know, this great Buddhist life is and all the rest of it, um, you know, and make all sorts of vague, you know, noises and lots of sort of pseudo-spiritual platitudes and so on. You know, that, you do encounter that, I think, in the spiritual world, so to speak. But the next virya underlies that's not good enough. Um, because the next one is called energy which is applied to work. Energy which is applied to work. You need, there is a task. There is work. I've already sort of referred to it. Uh, you've already started to do it through meditating this morning. Um, the word for meditation and in Buddhist tradition is kamatana, which means literally place of work, place of action. I don't know what practice you did today, whether it was the mindfulness of breathing. Well, what was it, mindfulness of breathing? But you, you also, some of you have done metabhavna, development of loving kindness. These are two of the many kamatanas in Buddhist tradition, the places of work. So that's really, really significant that those old Buddhist masters use that language. You've got to bring that energy to the place of work. As I've said, you're shaping your mind, you're working with that material, like a carpenter, like an irrigator, like a potter, uh, like a painter. You know, you're working on that material, which is you. You've got the form of the practice, which, which you're engaging with intelligently, applying it to your mind and you know that's work and you know you know that sometimes don't you that, that that you're sitting there and it's it's a kind of struggle you know and some people say oh don't struggle Re relax well okay relax for a bit but it is a struggle you know anything worth doing i think there's a tibetan saying if it's not tough practice it's not real practice you know if it, it doesn't take a lot of your effort and energy uh, a lot of work then it's not real uh, practice. It's something else. It's just making you comfortable with your particular version of uh, what we call the sangsara of, of ordinary life. No, it's a place of work. So you apply intelligently that roused up energy to what you need to do. And it's not just on the cushion or sitting in the chair uh, in meditation. The work has to go on outside. Sometimes people struggle in meditation and they, they want to know why they're struggling in meditation, why the, 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 the method isn't working. You know, is there any sort of tip or trick that can 
sort of shift my mind so I can really concentrate and, you know, get that juice, that honey of higher meditative experience. And there are things, ways of working in meditation, of course there are, all sorts of, of tips and, and little insights that, that, that you can apply and which you'll learn and you, we can, you can talk about with meditation teachers. But you've also got to look outside. You know, if, you, if you're trying to do the mindfulness of breathing and you have an incredibly speedy life, you know, a very, very distracted life, you're going to have a really tough time looking at your breath. You know, if before the class you've just spent hours on your phone, like looking at news feeds or, you know, I don't know what people do. Um, well, I do because I do it myself. Um, but it's going to be really hard just to sit down and just be with your breath, isn't it? I mean, that's going to be really tough. So you've got to start, you've got to start taking that awareness into your daily life, simplifying your life reducing input if you can, spending time in silence, spending time doing nothing, spending time you know, going off to the countryside if you can, or just taking a pause, just taking a pause in the day just to do nothing. Or in relation to the loving-kindness meditation, it's going to be really, really tough to develop uh, loving you know, emotions in that, in that meditation you know, if, if you're always falling out with people, you know, if you're in conflict with people, or if your relationships are, you know, uh, really dull, you know, if you're, if, you know, you're not actually having stimulating, you know, really stimulating friendships going on in your life, really, really tough, you're just going to be emotionally dead. So if you're struggling in, in meditation, you've got to look at the place of work outside of your outside of the sitting meditation. You've got to see, well, what do I need to do, you know, in order to work, you know, in meditation more effectively? So meditation starts to overflow into life. And this is where the Buddhist path, or, or the traditional Buddhist, why the Buddha developed a whole load of, of practices. You know, you have ethical practices, you have the precepts, the ethical guidelines, uh, you have meditation. You also have wisdom practices, which begins with learning. It begins with learning what the Buddha actually said. You've got to start learning about how he saw life, if you're really serious about taking up this path. Um, this will lead to a direct understanding uh, of the way things are. So the place of work extends beyond sitting in meditation applying energy to the place of work will be, well, if you want it to be, it will be the whole of your life. You know, coming into all of your relationships, all of your connections uh, with people. You experience it perhaps most strongly if you go on retreat. I mean, the centre here organises retreats and it's good to go away for a weekend or a week or something like that and experience a total life for a while. Just to taste that, where each day is your place of work, is your kamatana, it's your, it's your place where your energy is being applied uh, to, you know, to Buddhist practice. Okay, you're going along nicely, you've roused up your energies, you're applying that energy to Buddhist practice, you know, you're going along and maybe you even have some success, you know, you feel something opening up in meditation, uh, you're feeling sort of happier, and then 
for one reason or other, it gets difficult. It gets difficult. You, I don't know, you lose interest maybe, or you just realise it's really hard. It might be that sort of things emerge in your life which are really hard to face, maybe in relationship to other people. Just stuff. Um, stuff. Um, stuff happens. Um, Buddhist tradition would say, well, you know, one of the things you activate in Buddhist practice is your past. And by the past isn't meant this life. It might be way back. All sorts of habitual material, which is very resistant uh, to change, and you can lose heart. So the next energy, the next virya, is the energy that does not lose heart. It's a lovely expression in English. I don't know what the, the Sanskrit is, but it's so easy to lose heart, isn't it? You know, you just, oh, God, why am I doing this? You know, why on earth? It's just so hard, so so difficult to make progress you know that's what it can feel like sometimes you know really you know really tough i mean i you know I, you know get used to it after a while i think that's worth worth you know bearing in mind you get used to losing heart it just becomes part of the weather i think i probably lose heart every day uh when i look at myself and uh look at my practice it's a lovely introduction by tara palita but i do get very uneasy with this thing about i got involved with the dharma when i was a teenager and because I always feel, I often say this, that, yeah, you could ask me some very serious questions of how far I've got since I've been practicing, <laughs> since I was 17 years old and I'm 66 now. I mean, I think that would be a very legitimate question. But anyway, you're not asking me any questions at the moment. But losing heart, I think, happens. Because this is a difficult life. Uh, leading a life of complete self-honesty and you're really trying to bring into existence constant awareness, constant awareness of the way things are, the way life is, its impermanence, its insubstantiality, the fact that there is so much overwhelming suffering, you're trying to bring into existence you know, great love and compassion and awareness consistently, well, that's a big ask. You know, that's not, you know, you might be able to sustain it for a little while on a good day when the wind's in the right direction. But it's a hard life. You know, it's, it's you know, sorry, I'm not selling the Dharma very well, am I? I mean, deeply satisfying life. But, you know, it's inevitable that you will lose heart. Again, loads and loads of stories about the Buddha where, you know, um, you know there's, there's a story, actually, it's somebody very early on in there their connection with the Dharma. It's a story of Yasha, who was a sort of playboy, very wealthy, um, and he'd been partying all night, um, you know, in his mansion, um, you know, and he, he kind of woke up in the middle of the night and there's just one candlelit light, you know, and he looks around at all the revelers around him, sleeping and snoring and dribbling, and he just feels this utter disgust at himself and at life, and he just runs out into the night, runs and runs and runs, this, this uh, you know, complete waster, you know, a, a real party animal, you know, and he's, he's shouting, it's horrible, it's terrifying, it's frightening. This is just like living in a, in a cremation ground. It's just like living in, a, in, the, in the world of the dead. 
you know, the, the sort of horror and squalor of him, basically. And he runs out into this parkland and he's shouting, it's horrible, it's horrible. And the voice just comes out of the darkness and says, this isn't horrible. This isn't frightening. And he just stops. And of course, it's the Buddha just sitting in the night. And there's just communicate. he just gives him heart. He just gives him heart. And he says, okay, okay, this is not horrible. This is not fearful. And the Buddha says, no, sit down. Let me talk to you. And he applies him to work. He applies, you know, what's happening to him to working in meditation. And sometimes that's all we need when we lose heart. We just need to be around somebody who has heart and they give it to us. They put us back in touch uh, with what's important. I've had an experience of that myself with my own teacher, with, with, with Sangharachita. One time I was um, manning the telephone uh, where I live at, at Padmaloka and uh, he phoned up um, to talk forget why he phoned up. It's still not clear to me why he phoned up. It's not even clear to me why I happened to be answering the phone that evening. I mean, it's a slightly bizarre uh, situation. And um, he said, oh, how are you? And I said, well, it's really difficult, Banti. I'm finding things really difficult. You know, it's, it's really hard making progress. You know, I just feel that there's, you know, there's no progress. And he said, no, no, there is progress. And it's measurable. I said, well, no, I find it really... No, it's measurable. And he just kept saying the word measurable over and over again. I thought, I got the message, all right, you know, okay, there's some measurable progress. And in a way, it was a bit fierce because I was feeling sorry for myself because that's what happens when you lose heart, don't you? And he wasn't having that. He never had that. He said, no, measurable, get on with it. That was the, that was the sort of implication. But it was very, very helpful. Very, very helpful. And sometimes we need that. We need somebody to say to us, no, you're doing all right. Yeah, it's hard. It's difficult. Part of the problem is that we have, perhaps it's our, you know, our, our Western, you know, ideas of progress and career success. You know, we bring that to, or, or educational success, you know, we're highly competitive, individualistic Westerners. Um, and, you know, and we, we sort of expect results very, very quickly and they've got to be really powerful experiences, kind of mind-blowing experiences of enlightenment and insight and higher levels of consciousness where your mind is just blown and, you know, you've achieved a kind of privileged state. I mean, I've met a lot of people like that, you know, who, who are trying to convince me they're enlightened. I mean, next time you meet them, they've, they've given up and gone back to um, a very worldly life. So... That's part of the problem. We need to think much more in terms of the traditional Buddhist language of bhavana. Bhavana is one of the words for the path. It's a beautiful word, bhavana. It means literally making to become. Making to become. That's what it literally means. And it's this idea that, that life is a becoming. It's already a becoming. There's nothing sort of static in life. It's always moving. It's always changing. And what we have to do is sort of tap into that. And our life, our Buddhist life, is a gentle flourishing and growing. You use that word flourishing. 
Torah politics. Well, flourishing doesn't happen quickly. You know, maturing doesn't happen quickly. Ripening doesn't happen quickly. In, in nature, it doesn't happen quickly. It can appear very fast, but it's actually slow but steady. It's a movement. It's a development. Yes, maybe sometimes you do have those moments where something wonderful opens up, a wonderful sense of flourishing. But a lot of the time, it's just this wonderful incremental movement of, of change and transformation. Sometimes it's good to look back. Look back at how you were. Look, look how far you've come. We're often judging ourselves, well, on all sorts of, with all sorts of strange criteria, sort of a weird idea of how we should be or what this Buddhist life should be, ought to be. And we especially do that with other people. Um, Buddhists are very good at doing that with other people. Um, but no, look back. Look back. You know, how far have you come? You're probably not the person you were. It might not be as wonderful as you expected it to be, but it's actually significant. And there's no reason why that can't keep happening. Actions have consequences. That's another you know, way of describing the Dharma, the way of describing the Buddhist life. Independence upon these conditions arises those conditions. There's no reason why this can't keep going. So give yourself heart through reflecting on how far you've come. Uh, you, you know, that, that, that will give you, if there's nobody else around to give you that, as it were. I mean, sometimes other people have to tell you that. Crikey, don't give up because you've come such a long way. Please don't give up. I don't want you to be that person that was like that all those years ago. Please. Uh, okay, you might have, no more have, uh, you might have developed the energy that doesn't lose heart, but there's another energy, and it's called the energy that doesn't turn back. Uh, in a way, this is much more sort of subtle, really. Um, you know, you might be doing well in your Buddhist life. You might have been doing it for quite a long time. But it's very, very easy to settle down. It's very, very easy to sort of settle down into a sort of a good Buddhist life. What, what our teacher once called a positive rut. Um, you know, it's, it's okay. It's good. You know, you're a a sort of reasonably happy, healthy human being with a bit of Buddhism going on. Um, but it's a rut, you know, it's a bit habitual, it's a bit stuck, it's a bit limited. And um, you, you know you're in it, you know you're in it, is when something new opens up. Somebody comes along, say, with a new suggestion about how you could be, how you could live this life, or how you could run your Buddhist centre or your retreat centre, or or something like that, or especially sometimes you get a, when you get older, you notice that you get sort of, uh, you know, younger people coming up and they're really almost like snapping at your heels sort of thing spiritually and just through their, you know, their sheer joie de vivre from, from practice, they sort of challenge you. Um, and if you find yourself saying, hang on, we don't do things like that, you know, that's not in the script. No, 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 there are, there are rules. You know, there are ways to do things. Well, you can be pretty sure you haven't got the energy uh, that doesn't turn back. You've reached a sort of limitation when you're like that. There's a, a very famous 
later Buddhist sutra, Mahayana sutra, called the White Lotus Sutra. And in this sutra, there's this tremendous sort of opening. The Buddha's going to give a tremendous new revelation of the Dharma, a new teaching not given before. Everybody's very expectant. But I think it's about 500 of his so-called disciples. A new teaching? But we know everything. And they walk out. They turn their back on the Buddha. They don't want to know the new teaching. Uh, that's, we didn't sign up for this. Uh, we didn't sign up for something new. Uh, we don't want that. Uh, and it's something you have, you have to really watch out for in, in, if you've been practicing for a while. If you're in a nice, it's good to get into a groove. It's good to get into a sort of, to be established in, in, in your Buddhist practice. But it's very, very good to be shaken up. I mean, that's why it's good to have Buddhist centers, I think, and, and new people coming along. You actually do us a favor. You do me a favor because you'll be keeping us on our toes. You know, and especially if you start asking awkward questions. Fortunately, I don't think there's going to be time for a question and answer <laughs> after this because um, you maybe have to do that in the break afterwards because, you, 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 you know, your, your assumptions are challenged. And it's, it's very, very seductive, especially if you, you know, what can happen if you're not careful is that you might even have a few disciples and uh, they think, you know, you're something very special and all that sort of thing. So that needs to be shaken up all the time. There's a, a sort of personification of limitation in, in Buddhist tradition called Mara. Mara is, 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 is sometimes called the Lord of Limitations. I think there are ladies of limitations who are lords and ladies of limitations. You know, and it's when we, he, he's particularly strong, uh, when we think we've arrived. And that's why it's so, so important for our practice to be challenged and broken up. And again, I think retreats are really good for that. If you haven't been on a retreat, I'd really encourage you to go on one because it can really sort of shake up uh, your Buddhist practice. You've got to keep it alive. You've got to keep, it you've got to keep your Dharma life as fresh as possible. And I think also getting involved in, you know, when you can, when you're ready, and not just having your own Buddhist practice, but being involved in sharing Buddhist practice. I mean, there's a lot of people I know in the room here not just the order members, but, but others I know who volunteer to help run the centre. I think that's a very good way of shaking up your Buddhist practice so it doesn't get complacent. Being involved in sort of helping uh, the Dharma, Buddhism, meditation, uh, to reach other people, where people ask you, well, what is all this about? What are you doing? Uh, that's a really good thing to get involved with. It keeps you fresh, it keeps you alive. And of course... In the end, Buddhist practice is all about doing it for others. This is what's called the Bodhisattva path, the Bodhisattva ideal. The Bodhisattva is someone who's dedicated in, to enlightenment, but for them, it can only be an enlightenment for all. They're not just interested in doing it for themselves. They want everybody, in principle, to have enlightenment. They want everybody to live this path. Not in a sort of fundamentalist way, you know, sort of forcing people into the Buddhist path, but sharing it and allowing people to have the opportunity to uh, make the most of their precious human existence. 
So the next energy is the energy that's never satisfied. That's never satisfied. You, if you're on that Bodhisattva path, you're never satisfied. Not in a neurotic way. Well, I'm not satisfied. That's not good enough. No. A Bodhisattva is someone deeply contented. Deeply at ease. Because they, you know, they, they're still pushing on in meditation. They, they're absorbed, they can be absorbed in the deepest of meditative experiences. They're not satisfied because they want to keep taking Buddhism into new situations, just like it happened in, in, in the Buddhist East, just like it's happening now. We want the Dharma, we want Buddhism to, to reach everybody, you know, no matter what, how they see the world, how they see life. And that is never satisfied, and you're never satisfied, because you've got to be ingenious, you've got to be creative. You know, you know, because sometimes, very frankly, I, I'll be really honest. I've done, you know, I have worked in centres a lot, and I do these retreats at Padmaloka, and you know, there, there are lots of different people coming along. And sometimes you think, how on earth am I going to communicate the Dharma to this person? They're really weird, and of course, they think you're really weird as well. You know, I mean, it's not one-sided. How do we? How do we communicate? How do we? How do we? How do we meet? How do we apply all this? It's fantastic. It's so stimulating and challenging. And every time you feel you sort of fail in a communication, you feel dissatisfied. You want to meet. You want to discover that common humanity, that common ground, that common uh, spiritual potential. So you need a lot of energy to do this. In the end, you need what's called spontaneous, compassionate activity. You know, that's the end of the Buddha's path. Spontaneous compassionate activity. And our teacher once defined this, you know, big moment. He's describing enlightenment. Spontaneous compassionate activity. What's it like? You do what needs to be done. There's nothing between you and what needs to happen. There's no egotism in you, no bias. So you do what needs to be done. You're highly responsive, highly attuned. And this kind of energy, this kind of love, is, um, I mean, I can use the words, but I mean, it doesn't really, it's unimaginable. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do an old-fashioned thing that we always used to do in the old days in talks, Lalita Ratna will remember. I'm going to leave you with an image of energy, of enlightened energy, um, not the Buddha, uh, a figure you've probably, maybe some of you have heard of, comes from the Tibetan Tantric tradition. It's a form, one of the eight forms of a very famous figure called Padmasambhava. And his name is Dorje Drollo, which means something like adamantine sagging belly. <laughs> because he's got a sagging belly, which of course is the symbol for emptiness. The realisation of emptiness is a sagging belly, fortunately for us, Ladisaratna. Yeah. But he's deep red. He's almost like a black red, like a maroon, really deep red. He's, as I said, he's very stout. He's uh, not sitting down. He's sort of dancing above a pregnant tigress, which is the most ferocious 
of animals imaginable, uh, which is highly explosive and volatile. He rides this creature above a sea of rakta, which is blood, which is the great bliss. If you like, it's the lifeblood of spiritual life. He's enveloped in the flames that destroy the world at the end of the eon, an absolute destructive blaze. He has three bulging eyes, one in the middle of the forehead, dreads, great thick orange matted dreadlocks around his back, down his back. He's wearing a garland of 50 freshly severed heads. He's wielding a thunderbolt and a dagger. And he is the expression of utterly untrammeled energy, enlightened energy. It's also, it's, it's, it sounds like a very destructive figure. Actually, it is an extremely precise figure. It's this tremendous blaze of creative energy and the deep red colour is the colour of this spontaneous love and compassion. He has three great terrible oaths, which are really good to practice, really good to reflect on, especially when things are particularly challenging and demanding. And they go like this, the expression of this enlightened energy. Whatever happens, let it happen. Whichever way it goes, let it go that way. I really don't need anything. There you go. <laughs>